I mean, in 1990, East Berlin was 130 squats, it was paradise. <laughs> Welcome back to another Berlin. My name is Cody. And my name is Katarina. This is part two of our four-part mini-series on squatting here in Berlin. In part one, we talked about the first wave, which lasted from the 60s until the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, in part two, we're traveling to East Berlin to explore the second wave. A quick disclaimer, we are not professional historians, and though we did our very best to present accurate information, history is complicated, and the stories we have are often incomplete. The conclusions we've come to, based on the facts we have, are our own. We hope this history and these stories are as interesting to you as they are to us, and if so, we encourage you to explore and learn more. Our website, another.berlin, has some links and resources to help get you started. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell and forever changed the landscape of the city and the squatting movement. But before the wall fell, East Berlin was already familiar with squatting, but it was a different kind, the non-political kind. The black dwelling, or Schwarzwohnen, was an almost legal way of squatting. The pre-war buildings in DDR, they weren't demolished, but they weren't renovated either. Many wanted to move to new Plattenbau buildings or the tall housing blocks in the area of Pritzlauerberg, Lichtenberg, Marzahn. People with less money would occupy pre-war empty buildings, register with local federal agency, pay small fee to continue their living there. So the authorities of DDR, they had an open mindset and laws towards occupying empty houses. When the wall fell, a large number of people moved from the east to the west. Some went to reunite with families after nearly 50 years living apart. Some people went to the west because of money. They even got the Beglusungsgeld, or welcome money, when they entered the west. And some people maybe just went to buy Levi jeans. But as a consequence, East Berlin was very empty. Even though the wall had fallen, Berlin wasn't a unified city. The reunification of Berlin wouldn't happen until almost a year later, on October 3rd, 1990. This time between the fall of the wall and the reunification is called the vacuum period, and it was during this period that the second wave of squatting occurred. And during the vacuum period, the laws of West Germany didn't yet apply in the East. So what that meant was that the laws the West had regarding squatting had no real full authority in the East. When we combine this with the empty East Berlin, the rebellious residents of the West who had moved there, the results are pretty clear. In the vacuum period, which lasted less than a year, 130 houses were squatted. One interesting side note. It is worth mentioning that during this period in West Berlin, almost 60 new squats were occupied but only three of them survived for more than a day or two because of Berliner Linie. We had the privilege to sit with Marco Krojac, who was a very active squatter from that time 
and who came to Berlin just two days after the wall fell and witnessed the most brutal eviction in the history of squatting in Berlin, the eviction of Mainzer Straße. Apart from living in various squats in the East, Marco was actively photographing the squatter scene at that time, and he has created some of the most significant photos from that period. Here is his story. I was thinking I would end up in Hamburg, but finally I ended up in Berlin. I was 21 when I came here in the summer, 1990. And when the wall fell, two days later I was in Berlin because we were drinking in the bar in Heidelberg. It was boring and said like, ooh. You heard the wall felt and say, oh yeah, let's go to Berlin. So we jumped in a small car, five people. Like, um, when I, yeah, when I woke up a little, like, I was thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> but we went to East Berlin because I heard some friends of mine squatted a house. Squatting was, I, I mean, like uh, the human right for a living. That's also against the capitalistic thinking anyway. And in our times, for me, it was like an adventure. For a lot of people, it was the necessity to get a flat, like with no money. So. I came two days after they squatted the house, which I moved in, like in August 1990. It was Riga 80, not existing anymore. I think they got evicted in 96 or 97, I'm not sure. I mean, Riga Straße was like uh, Riga 77, Riga 78, Riga 80, Riga 83, Riga 84. Riga Straße 80, where I lived. I think we had one one real Berlin person in our house. Like we were 30 all together. I remember like I was sitting in front of 78 and they had this this uh, window you could open and then tack, they were, we were buying beer out of the window and two weeks later when I came back it was not working anymore so I said okay this bar has to be open so we opened the bar again then there was the trouble with the house you're not from our house you're from the next house and I said, come on guys we, we're trying to open your bar <laughs> and there was this arguing and there was too many junkies in the house so in the end they stole us the empty bottles <laughs> like after three months i was like okay i have no money anymore so that's everything shit so okay that's it let's go on somewhere else <laughs> I mean, in the East, it was like everything was suppressed by a totalitarian state, like a Stalinistic state even. So the uprising against the system was not only punk rock, but also the Nazi thing. And the wall felt, and the Nazis, they were like mushrooms, blah, blah, blah. 
the way everywhere. With quite a strong movement, and I don't know, it was more the hooligan style, it seems. And, and, uh, I mean, there was a time it was we had trouble not with the police, funnily, but with the Nazis. And there were strange stories like the Nazis came to Fahrstraße to the bar and said, us together against the state and after that uh, powerful wins. <laughs> On the other side, uh, East German cops were asking us to help them against the Nazis. Mm. So and it was like, wow. When I think of that times and uh, like one year ago, I was like, oops, I forgot that I was running around. I had a gun in my pocket, like a gas gun, and I had a stick with me. It's like until 92, I believe. I mean, it was crazy times. It was really crazy times. Photography was my language. I was going around in the squads and sharing them with the people. Like a kind of uh, giving, taking system, like I came by, there was the dinner and you get some photos. So it was a lifestyle at that time. It was crazy. I mean, like everybody was still open. It was like still this euphoria of and everything was possible. That was the crazy thing. I mean, like the East Germany knew they are not existing for long. So and that was this this vacuum gray zone space which just has exploded. Just an example how I started to photograph. I came to Berlin with the idea to photograph. There was this euphoric times and then winter 1991 we found an ad in the newspaper like we sell photo paper. I said okay let's start a photo lab. And we went there and it was like the photo workshop of Stasi in Treptow. And we came there and it's like uh, about the ad and the photo paper, I already sold it. So we went, we turned around and in that moment, like a developer smashed from the second floor in front of us, like, <laughs> he said, oh, there's nothing in that, that aspect. Like, so we said, like, uh, can we go in and look what that trash is? Yeah, 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 no problem. And from this moment, we went one week every day. We had not a big car, so every day we went there and got stuff. We had the whole photo lab after that from Stasi. Yeah, after this, this Stasi photo lab thing, they closed the Stasi center, central. Okay, maybe we are naive, but we go there and ask, and they said, hey, fine, come with us. And <laughs> we were like in the cellar, he opened one door, oh, you can take everything next door, you can take everything next door. 
And then we had to stop after a week. We, we, we had no space anymore to stuff all the film, photo, paper, coming. It's like paradise. It, and that's what I mean. It was still paradise. They threw everything away and we just stood there and opened our arms. Im Augenblick ist es verhältnismäßig ruhig im Stadtteil Friedrichshain im Osten Berlins, auch in der Mainzer Straße, in der es gestern Abend zuging wie an einem schlechten Tag in Beirut. Eine solche Nacht hat der Osten Berlins noch nicht gesehen, aber die Woche ist ja noch nicht vorüber. I mean, it was very tense and it was like sucking all of us in because it was our life form they were destroying at that moment. But, I mean, it was a shock for everybody here. It, it, it didn't stop us all, but it, it was a trauma for everybody who took part. And I was still thinking I will never throw a stone or Molotov cocktail, and in the evening I was throwing stones and anything. On November 14th, a street filled with 11 neighboring squats in Mainzerstrasse that were only seven months old but housed numerous bars, shops, a community kitchen, a cinema, and over 250 people, was in the beginning of a three-day eviction that would prove to be one of the more historical evictions in Berlin history. By the third day, over 3,000 police from all over Germany had converged with water tanks and riot gear for the final eviction push. News of the eviction would find coverage as far as the New York Times, and the resulting aftermath would forever change policy and politics in the newly reunified Berlin. We saw the blockade from Frankfurt, uh, like that was the beginning. I mean, it's a, it's a comical scene, because we were having breakfast, and then we were going on the balcony, and then we looked down, a squatter from the house. He came running in the house. The next second he appears next to us, grabs the case full of Molotov cocktails, runs out of the house, and we see just a cop car passing by. He's running in front of them with his... <laughs> They're stopping, like the one cop looks out and says, hey, 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 the other cops are getting him in, and it's like, wow, what's going on? And that was, I believe, so the moment when it all started to get really militant. I mean, the cops were quite fast then. I mean, immediately there was a water, Wasserwerfer, water cannon. The backyard to Kolbestraße was a Finnish building. And that, that made it possible to make enough good barricades. And I was in a team when we threw out the cops from this yard. And they managed to enter and we were having a break and it was like, oh, fuck cops. And then we were, I don't know, 10, 15 people running to the cops, throwing everything they had. And then they went out again and we were like, yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. I mean. The, the the thing I remember from that night is at around midnight they said, okay, like cheese fire. 
And then squatters and cops were collecting the stones from the Frankfurt holiday together. And it was so funny pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, why did I throw stones? I should have photographed earlier. The first day of the eviction, the squatters held on, building barricades, using obstacles and tactics to prevent the police from getting too far into the street and community. The first night, it seemed like they might actually have a chance. First night, we were all, yeah, we won. The next day was quite quiet. I mean, there were so funny situations. There was like a building machine in the Mainzer Straße and made some holes and stuff. Then there was a lot of solidarity and there was a lot of people from neighborhood standing around and discussing and fighting with the cops, which was, which was cool. And then there came the messages like, People coming from Hamburg, like, oh, we saw a hundred cops cars on the road to Berlin. People coming from Bavaria, oh, we saw 200 cops cars coming from South, blah, blah, blah. So we said, okay, hey, everybody who's not sure, go home. So, yeah, I mean, we, it was the 400 at the end, like, everybody knew we don't have a chance, but. The calm of the second day was only an illusion to buy time while the nearly 3,000 special force officers arrived from all over the country. On the morning of the third day, they were ready to use as much force as was needed to finish the eviction. And, and it was so scary. You looked at the Frankfurt Allee and suddenly the traffic stopped. And then it was all green, like boom, 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 cops came. I mean, I remember like when it was clear there's no chance left. So I was running over a roof on the other side of the street. The cops were standing and like shooting at us with their gas. Like, I mean, if they would hit me, would have hit me like I would have fallen five floors. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a miracle nobody died. The eviction that day, it was so fast. Like, it started and it was over. They just smashed through, bam. Then it was house to house to house. And it was like, I, I don't know, we were seven. We managed to go over a wall and then we were hiding in the cellar for three, four hours. And then we had the luck, there was a eviction break, so we slipped through the police lines. I was so happy and I managed to go, to get out before, but most of them were arrested, yeah. I don't know, I mean, I, mean, I was so traumatized after the whole thing and I, I was, shocked of myself, like what I was possible or able to do. I mean, come on. After Mainzer Straße, I said I never want to throw a stone or a fucking Molotov cocktail again. 
There was cops from all over fucking Germany. And they had a lot of fun. And they could have evicted everything if they have wanted. It was just to, to, say, to put a sign to say, hey, it's over. Bam. And I mean, after the eviction of Mainzer Straße, all the other houses, everybody, everybody was panicked anyway. Like, we are the next, we are the next, oh my God. The eviction of Mainzer Straße changed the squatting scene forever. After news spread of what happened, more than 75% of all remaining squads looked to legalize their buildings through various programs, thus technically ending the more political nature of and literal meaning of their squat. Without having such a shared threat throughout the whole community, things started to dissolve and become more fractured. As the East more fully merged with the ideals and capitalism of West Berlin, the squatting movement of the 90s started to fade away nearly as quickly as it had arrived. But it would be too easy to dismiss the crushing of the second wave as the failure of the politics and protest culture of the squatting scene. These ideas continue to thrive in different ways throughout almost everything that makes Berlin what it is. So join us for part three and part four of our squatting miniseries as we look at how former squats have become cultural institutions and how the movement is transforming for the modern city. Thanks for listening. This has been part two of our four-part miniseries on squatting. In the next episode, we take a look into the everyday life of squatting and how squats are built and grow. We also hear the story of what it's like to live today in a community building that was a former squat. Once again, my name is Cody. And my name is Katarina. Music for this episode was graciously provided by One Man Orchestra and Mark Weiser under the name Arun Mukha of the album 141190 Ein Akustisches Psychogramm. Each song of this album was created from field recordings made at the eviction of Mainzer Strasse, which is pretty cool. The research material and show notes are available on our website www.anotter.berlin. Please subscribe on your favorite place for podcasts and get in touch on Facebook and Instagram. We would like to leave you with one final thought from Marco. No. No, no, no. I mean, we, we won't change the system, but we can change the brains of people. I mean, it took me long to realize I can't change it all. So, and I'm happy to change one person or to, to give it a glimpse, like, boom. If you succeed one of the ten times, it's cool already. And if it's a little thing, you can change. Oh. I mean, yeah, I would like to change the world, but <laughs> do my way, step by step. Viele kleine Leute, die viele kleine Dinge tun, können die Welt verändern. Many small people which do many small things can move something, can change the world. <laughs>